that's the goal for us is just to kind of bring that clarity in terms of like, what are my assets worth? And if I'm looking to buy one, uh, how should I think about like how the sales are trending and, and what the attributes of that NFT are worth? Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains and the go-to place for everybody to learn about the latest innovations in Web3, NFTs, and the decentralized web. Join us each week to hear from experts, entrepreneurs, and the early stage investors that are building the future on the blockchain. Not only will this podcast help you understand why these emerging technologies are so important, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the metaverse. GMGM, thanks for tuning into the Unstoppable Podcast. My name is Josh Gordon. I'm your host. We've got a fantastic guest today, Christian Dittmeyer, co-founder of Evaluate Market, a platform where you can really analyze your portfolio and the latest movements in the NFT world. It's something I've been using for a while. Christian, thanks for jumping on the pod today. Yeah, no problem, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Evaluate Market might have been the first dap that i use and actually i'd like i don't even know if it is officially a dap or if it's just connected to kind of a web3 data but when when i started my nft journey with top shot back in january of 2021 when evaluate market came on the scene that was the talk of the town everyone was using it so very cool to connect with you yeah thanks thanks for having me on i think i probably started collecting nfts at a similar time early top shot in january a lot of similar experiences. I noticed we both have mutants too, so I'm sure we have a, a good amount in common on, in, in terms of uh, like NFT collecting. Totally. Shout out to the Mutant Ape Yacht Club. We can dive into that soon too. I'd love you to just start us off with giving background on yourself, how you got into crypto originally, and ultimately like what led up to the moment of founding Evaluate Market, and we'll dive into those details more from there. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Christian Dittmeyer. Before Evaluate, I worked as a data analyst and data engineer. I was at Rapid7 uh, sort of doing cybersecurity data analysis. Before this, I worked at Iora Health, which was a healthcare startup. And then before that, I did a lot of financial analysis, inventory evaluation. And then I was also a state bank regulator for a while, which wasn't too much fun. Yeah. In terms of how I started Evaluate, I met my two co-founders, Cody Boucher and Alex Ramirez, playing uh, Xbox Live back when Halo 3 was really popular. So around 10 years ago, we all lived in Texas. So we used to meet up and play Halo. We kept up through the years. Alex uh, is a very talented full stack uh, application developer. He worked at Lockheed Martin, some of the national labs, a couple of like poker startups, things like that. And Cody is a transaction system wizard, so he worked in oil and gas. Uh, he did a lot of work in banking, and we had just kind of kept up through the years. Alex and I were playing fantasy sports pretty unsuccessfully, but we were using code to optimize lineups. And then one of our now coworkers, uh, Ray, introduced us to Top Shot in early January. So we were already kind of using, like we had like in a database that we were using to sort of store lineups and generate them. So we just started collecting NBA Top Shot data, thinking like, okay, we're going to make a lot of money, you know, in NBA Top Shot versus, you know, fancy sports, which is the winners are extremely talented and it's, it's hard to make money there. So uh, we did that and then quickly realized that like there was a lot of promise in terms of providing tools for NBA Top Shot. And so yeah, so we uh, built an app in, I would say, late January, early February, uh, released it and just had a ton of success early on, causing us to raise money and then eventually add more blockchains and NFT collections. Yeah, awesome story there, especially that the way you met your co-founders online playing video games. I feel like that's very metaverse-esque and, and a good story. Now, 
when you started collecting top shots, did it feel crazy to you, like that idea of NFTs, if that was really your first exposure to, you know, that kind of collection? Or did you immediately see the the potential, like the product fit and the the idea, did the idea resonate with you around, you know, scarcity on the internet and being able to collect assets like that? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. So I remember uh, it was at least a year or two prior reading about CryptoKitties and thinking it was absurd. I think there was something, it was either CryptoKitties or something related where there was like certain NFTs that had like almost like a misprint, right? Where there was something wrong with it and causing the value to skyrocket. And I was definitely super skeptical about it. I think the interesting thing with NBA Top Shot was, it was you know, we were very big NBA fans. Been a Phoenix Suns fan for a long time. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona until I was around 10. So that kind of helped get over the hump where I was like, okay, these are licensed by the NBA. You know, why not sort of just take a chance on it? I think I bought a Devin Booker moment for around like $18. I bought a pack, which I thought was a lot of fun, right? Like the, the pack opening experience was sort of, you know, especially during that time where, you know, a lot of people were spending time at home. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And so uh, I did that. And then Alex bought three packs. He's a huge uh, Utah jazz fan. And we were playing, you know, fantasy sports a lot. So it was kind of like up our alley in terms of like seeing, you know, the NBA or sports as something sort of that you can make uh, financial. So we did that. And then we checked back like a week or two later. Uh, I think there was like a Jonathan Bales article about buying like an expensive LeBron James moment that caused a lot of sort of interest in the space. And a lot of people who are into fantasy and following that world kind of came over and we noticed that our assets had exploded in value, but there wasn't really a lot of tools uh, outside of simple portfolio ones that really let you see over time how different NFTs performed. I think on the NBA Top Shots website at that time, you could only see like the last like 20 sales or something. So we kind of set out to to solve some of those issues. I definitely wasn't like the kind of person who just kind of came in and immediately saw that like wow this is like the future of of how people are going to be spending time and owning things on the internet it was more so like uh being sort of brought in by the brand of the nba and then also uh sort of the the, the fantasy background i find it interesting that you weren't someone who was like an og crypto punk holder that's been developing in the ethereum ecosystem for years you came in in 2021 during like the nft craze connected with the MBA, that brand and that NFT experience, and then became a builder after that. I think a lot of people feel excitement around NFTs right now, but it's almost like, oh, if I wasn't an OG, you know, how can I contribute to the space? But you're proving right now, like you're becoming an experienced vet in, in the NFT world by simply, you know, being passionate about it and, and starting. And you definitely formed a great community and tool since. So I also like what you said about the, the pack experience with Top Shot. It was fun. I was living with roommates at the time and that was a highlight of our week when we all got packs or we were in the queue and trying to see who was gonna get a pack. I don't know, do you think there's been a better pack opening experience than Top Shot or have they still kind of set the bar for what it's like to minting an NFT? The other mints I've been a part of, definitely it's more like you mint it on a website then you go to OpenSea and you wait for the metadata refresh which i don't know it's not quite as good an experience i think yeah i i would say that at least in sort of the nft experiences that that i've been a part of i would say the the pack opening for nba top shot uh and then i think to a newer extent and in, in for ufc strike and nfl day which are improving as well that's probably like a very unique experience in terms of pack opening versus, you know, like NFT metadata reveals where it's still exciting. It's definitely almost a bigger lottery, right? Like if you can uh, win a Moonbird raffle and then have a, a, you know, a gold one revealed and all of a sudden you have $500,000, that's exciting as well. But I think the nice thing about NBA Top Shot and, and, and 
similar flow NFTs is sort of the approachability where you and your friends can all, you know, you don't have to win a raffle and spend thousands of dollars. You can all kind of spend, you know, nine, fifty, hundred dollars and and kind of participate in that. And it's, you know, it's assets that you care about if you're an NBA fan. So yeah, definitely a unique experience. So diving into the evaluate market tool and product more. Now, when I first started using it, it was basically I went to I went to a website, I put in my username and it pulled up my NBA Top Shot portfolio and kind of showed me like charts and, and some data around my, my moments. And just like you, I watched my moments skyrocket. I was going after the Cool Cats Master Challenge. My portfolio reached like 20,000 and then, you know, it plummeted since. I definitely was, I did not, I did not sell any and just committed to the HODL. How has the tool progressed since then? Is it still really just a portfolio tracker? Can give me like the, the top three bullet points of, around what Evaluate's doing, the value you're providing. It's two-sided. Our first goal is for our users to be able to manage their NFT portfolio across different marketplaces, different blockchains, and, and even more importantly, different wallets, right? So you can go to Evaluate, you can link your Dapper wallet, multiple MetaMask wallets, your block to wallet, a Coinbase wallet, and then see a unified view of your portfolio, uh, which then you can track those prices across different marketplaces. And I think beyond that, sort of on the discovery level, you can go to individual NFTs, whether you own them or looking to buy one and see what they're worth at the trade level, how they're selling across different marketplaces. So uh, today we added Looks Rare, we have OpenSea, Gaia, the NBA Top Shot, Storefront, Vive for, I think around, I think we just hit 800 NFTs and the goal is to scale that to thousands. So yeah, I think like the focus for us is for you to be able to go to one place and see your holdings across different wallets and then be able to price them based off of what's happening, not just in a single marketplace, but in a sort of an environment where there's multiple large marketplaces. And I think we're starting to see fragmentation in terms of where sales are happening uh, in NFTs and, and where they're being listed. So yeah, I think that that's the goal for us is just to kind of bring that clarity in terms of like, w- what are my assets worth? And if I'm looking to buy one, uh, how should I think about like how the sales are trending and, and what the attributes of that NFT are worth? It's interesting that you are including, you know, multiple blockchains in the analysis and also being able to attach multiple wallets. What's your reasoning behind being blockchain agnostic? For us, we've noticed that our users and NFT collectors, uh, including us, don't care as much about like the ecosystem or or the the technology, you know, the tech infrastructure of that NFT. Uh, They care about the art, the brands, the assets themselves. So for us, we've noticed that, you know, on Ethereum, people tend to have multiple Ethereum wallets. A lot of people are are similar to us where they collect across Flow and Ethereum, uh, Solana and others. And, you know, as a company, we're extremely bullish on Flow. and, And, but we also understand that uh, different blockchains have different sort of uh, applications that they're specialized for, right? Like Dapper is a, a, an excellent infrastructure for commercial applications that are looking to create hundreds of thousands or millions of NFTs and serve users who aren't comfortable with high transaction fees. I think Ethereum has kind of found a space in terms of people who are very focused on decentralization. It has a very good track record in terms of like serving that PFP market, being seen as assets that are almost like bebbling goods or, or very pricey in, in terms of like in value. Uh, and it has that historical element. So for us, you know, it's not that like we're, we just want to add whatever one's the winner. We just think that in the future, you know, people are going to be collecting across different blockchains that serve very different purposes. Yeah, no, it's interesting how you break down the different chains by what they do well or how they're perceived. Definitely at, un, at Unstoppable Domains, you know, we we are open to multiple blockchains it's really about whatever is best for the user so like polygon if that's going to reduce transaction fees and create a better minting experience you know that's that's where we'll serve versus strictly 
strictly sticking to the Ethereum blockchain, do you have any, and this is a very off the top question, so it's okay if you don't have an answer to it. Do you have like data or trends that you've seen on different L1s around their adoption? Like how is Solana and Flow compared their growth to Ethereum when it comes to the NFTs? Because I'm hearing a lot of buzz right now around Solana. And I also saw, you know, Flow or I guess Dapper Labs got another massive round of funding. So I imagine that they're having a lot of development activity on, on that blockchain too, right? I believe Dapper just announced a $750 million ecosystem fund, which I believe is the largest of its kind. And it's a good incentive for people to build on Flow. Flow is also, and Dapper Labs in particular, are working to sort of make Flow more accessible for developers so that you can deploy smart contracts without having to go through a manual review period. So I think there's a lot of optimism to be had in terms of their ecosystem. Uh, in terms of like data across different chains, I guess more on like an anecdotal level, I think you'll see a lot of trends in terms of like what's happening on Ethereum or what's happening on Flow really be driven by the top couple of projects, right? So when Yuga did the other deeds for other or the other side drop, uh, that drove a ton and ton of volume on Ethereum. Does that necessarily mean that like the sentiment on Ethereum is, is you know, 10x that month, maybe not, right? But and similar for Flow, right? Where when NBA Top Shot's performing well and then doing well and marketing well, that sort of trumps what the uh, you know maybe the hundred other NFT collections that are popular on Flow. You know the impact is really kind of driven at the top. There's a definite power rule in terms of like what projects drive the volume. It's exciting to see for like things like Solana and Flow and and others the the development and how it's being advanced. But yeah, you know, your guess is as good as mine in terms of like what chain is going to have the most volume in a year or five years. You know, there was a period where like Flow was, you know, growing, was explosive, but a lot of times it's it's more so about like the organic, like who's actually getting into these different projects for that experience or because of they enjoy that brand versus like these runs we see where there's sort of this like financial fever of like, I want to make 5X, 10X in a, in a day or a week and whatnot. But yeah, I wish I had brought like more data across in terms of like cross-chain adoption or, you know, like multiple blockchain adoption. But yeah. And then I think another thing that we see is a lot of people, like when they link a MetaMask account on our site, like they tend to just only look at Ethereum and a lot of people uh, who, who are on the Flow ecosystem tend to like stick to Flow. So our goals, and I'm sure similar to Stopple, is we want to make it easier for people to, to get involved with, to sign up or to create wallets on different sort of blockchain ecosystems and then manage that in one place. Because I think a lot of people, you have your wallet or your, you know, multiple MetaMask wallets, and that's the source of truth for what you own. And you might even forget that you own assets on other chains. So I hope that answers the question. I know it's a little bit all over. We might have to jam some time about talking about like NFT domain implementation because it's like when you have multiple wallets, a domain really helps you associate multiple wallets to like one human readable name, right? So you can you can track your your wallets easily. So if you want someone to send you from a transactional perspective, send you funds, you just give them one name. And it sounds like, you know, for tracking your portfolio, that's a big pain point for users is what I'm hearing. It's okay, I have all these different wallets. Now I have them across different chains. You know, if I forget to input my wallet and evaluate market, all of a sudden you're not tracking it versus having like one name that you've already associated all your wallets to for the transactional purpose. Now you can use that to do portfolio monitoring too. But yeah, it's that's definitely a pain point, I'd say, not just for your portfolio tool. We're seeing it in the like the domain area. It's just as users have more wallets, how do you how do you keep track of that? How do you maintain safety of all of them? Which ones do you use for which purposes? It's an interesting thing people are figuring out right now. 
like what's what's the average amount of wallets people are connecting to your site? Do you know? I mean, is it traditionally one or is it actually a little higher than that? Yeah, traditionally one. A lot of people are hesitant to connect their wallet. I think that's another challenge that if you're an application builder in Web3, if somebody is hearing about you for the first time, there's a, there's a sort of boundary they have, especially when you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in a wallet to actually connecting your wallet. And I think tools like we've looked heavily and we're working on uh, like signing in with Unstoppable or connecting with Unstoppable because you guys have an excellent sort of I guess, package that you allow people to connect with that. Things that allow people to kind of have more trust in, in sort of the application that they're building. I think we could do a better job as an application in terms of walking people through connecting multiple wallets. And that's something that we're researching heavily is like, how do we make this process intuitive? How do we incentivize people to to really go through the process of signing, you know, four or five wallets on, on different wallet providers? For the most part, we see a lot of people just connect one wallet. And a lot of people will, you know, I think in the past and in in, in even now, we offer a lot of functionality for people who don't even connect their wallets. So, but if you're looking to build in Web3, I think one challenge or one starting point that you have to look at is how do we build a reputation that, you know, if we want, if we need people to connect their wallet uh, to get people over that hump and how do we, you know, make it clear, provide resources for people in terms of like the level of permissions that you're giving this application. Because there's definitely, there's always like a trust factor in terms of getting people to connect. And, and obviously you can do a lot more when someone connects their wallet. Yeah. The, the permissioning side, I find really fascinating when that it starts to come into play with these Web3 products is when you connect your wallet, what permission are you giving the, the site, the dApp to do? Is it simply to view what's in your portfolio? Is it to potentially move things? And there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, from the user perspective, especially because you just click sign. There's no kind of description. But it's some, it is another thing that we're thinking through a lot with domains is when I sign in with my domain, what is the application asking for permission for? And then giving me the agency to say yes or no to that in exchange for access to the site. Maybe it's exchanged for promotional bonuses, tons of user experience and, and data aspects that I think a lot of us are figuring out in real time. Now, you mentioned some of the considerations that you are coming into mind as a builder in the space. When you were starting to build, evaluate from the beginning, you know, I think a lot of people right now say, oh, I want to create something in Web3. Maybe they, you think to an NFT collection, you think to maybe I'll make my own PFP. I don't think everyone is thinking about building tools around the NFT space. So what strikes you as our, our biggest needs right now from a data perspective? Is it just the analysis or are you seeing broader data needs in like the NFT space? It's specific to each ecosystem. I think with Ethereum, the, the toughest challenge for developers is that listings live off chain across multiple wall, uh, or marketplaces. So there's a fragmentation in terms of the process to go get the listings from Luxrare and go get them from OpenSea. With you know a Coinbase NFT, it's still early on, so you, most people don't have access to those listings on uncertain in terms of like I guess like the real vision for for Web three and blockchain would be that the data is accessible, uh, not just sales and transfers and whatnot, but also listings themselves. Why do they live? off-chain. Like, can you explain that a little further? Because I think I've heard about that with OpenSea. I don't think that's widely understood. Yeah. So the, the rationale on Ethereum is that fees are, are somewhat expensive, right? So in order to list or cancel or mint a, an NFT, you're, you're generally paying a transaction fee of, you know, tens or uh, in, in very busy times, hundreds of dollars. So the idea with sort of these lazy listings or sort of off-chain transactions is we're going to delay that cost until the item actually sells. So when you list something on OpenSea, you're not paying a transaction fee to list until the sale goes through and they've already sort of match made your order. So 
you know, and I think that's, you know, why there's advantages to, to Solana and Flow where the transaction fees are, are somewhat negligible. So you can do things on chain and that allows builders to kind of rally around that and, and, and use that data. But the, yeah, the short answer is that it saves people money. Uh, you can mint NFTs risk-free and OpenSea because you're not paying a transaction fee until somebody buys the asset. Hmm. And so that would be why a lot of applications, I don't want to say all, but a lot of applications rely on the OpenSea API. Is it because they're actually sharing the current data around floor prices, listings, because it doesn't live on chain? And so that's why we need the API? Yeah. And I would say because OpenSea's API is rate limited, and obviously, I mean, they're doing an excellent job, but there's a ton of people who want access to that information. A lot of people don't even use the API. Maybe they just scrape directly from the front end or, or use other sort of methods to, to collect that. But yeah, it, I think that's probably the biggest challenge there. And then in terms of Flow, just being sort of like an earlier ecosystem uh, that obviously has massive brands on it. So there's sort of you know compromises in terms of being decentralized that they've made and are hoping to kind of ease more decentral over time. But yeah, each you know, I would say each ecosystem has their own drawbacks, but there's a, a lot of very smart people building in, in each of them. And I think we'll see a lot of progress. Yeah, that, that kind of, to me, sums up sort of the, the, the challenges on, on the data side. And it's really important. I think the more sort of access developers have to, to data that's that's important like listings data and, and sales and transfers and whatnot uh, even images are really tough right like if you're a site like ours we have tens of millions of assets it's tough to like locally store all those images and there's cert- certain developers who are building solutions for that but yeah the more access that you have to like the actual nft data both on sort of the market side and also sort of like the like property trait side whether it's images or what attributes those nfts have the better experiences people can build in terms of like what shortages there are i think a lot of people are creating projects because it's a good way to make a lot of money very fast. I think it would be better for the ecosystem if there was more builders building experiences that take assets from all of these different collections and unify them, whether it's sort of trading and, and things like that or, or gaming or even social. So I think that's something that is, is what we can look forward to in a couple of years is when there's developers building sort of these applications that allow these different collections to interact with each other or trade. Yeah, when almost all of my day-to-day NFT experiences are going to OpenSea, going to places like Evaluate, you know, looking at it's, it's really like, it's so trade heavy. And I'm, I'm excited for it to be a little bit more social, a little bit more experience based. I feel like Yuga is a good example with, all right, they drop their token, they drop their land, and everyone's like, okay, shoot, you did everything that the that top PFP projects should do. Now what? You know, now we're just like, everyone's like, what? what's next? And there's this massive uncertainty. And, and sure, there's things on the roadmap, but it's it's almost very, just very uncertain around what you do while you wait when you have your NFT. And so having more experiences or tools to access, resources to dive into would be helpful. Can I jump back to the API thing one more time? Because I'm kind of just fascinated about it. And I feel like you just have such a good firsthand experience with it. So what would happen what do you think would happen to the broader NFT ecosystem if OpenSea shut down their API, kind of like, you know, Twitter, Twitter really restricted their API back in the day. It used to be very developer friendly and now, and now it's not so much. We'll see if that changes. But yeah, if OpenSea took that access back, how would that affect the broader like dApps and, and marketplaces that connect to that info? I think it would probably hurt marketplace activity because there's there's web applications like aggregators, um, like what we try to do or Genie and Gem, where they're kind of pooling listings together in a single interface. Things like trade bots on Twitter 
would a lot of them would, would cease to exist. Making the data more accessible kind of hurts like the overall like transaction volume. But there are people who are building solutions that are uh, independent of OpenSea in order to to bring these listings in. I think for them, they always incentivize. I mean, they want that data to be out there. They want people to kind of build on top of the activity that happens on their marketplace. So I don't think it's something that they would consider. Yeah, it would definitely. I think it's sort of just it's not sort of the goal for them is to to make their data harder to access. I think it's more so just wanting to provide builders with with the data that they have so that more people are using their marketplace or seeing their listings or understanding why their assets have liquidity because of all that trade volume that that they produce. Yeah, makes sense. And do you know anything about looks rare and how and, and their listings are they also providing an API or does their stuff list exist on chain? Yeah, so they also have a off-chain order system. They have a lot of interesting nuances for their sort of listing infrastructure that allow you to do things, maybe less on the listing side, but do things like collection offers, right? Where I can go on Luxrare and say, hey, I'll pay 20 ETH for any mutant instead of having to go through in each individual one and, and post offers, which is great, right? Like that, that kind of gives the ability that people who know how to make bot offers and, and do across multiple assets, they give that accessibility to everybody. They do have an API. I, I think it's still sort of in the beta stage where they contact certain applications to test it. And, and, and while they're building out the different endpoints and uh, making it usable. But Luxury, I think, is, is, a, is an excellent, you know, they, they do things slightly differently than OpenSea, but I think they're, they're very passionate about making sure that third parties uh, have access to that data. You know, somewhat more complicated with like listing rewards and allowing aggregators to kind of pass that through. But it seems like they put a, a ton of effort into that and uh, their team's extremely talented. Yeah, it's interesting that they also have some of this off-chain data structures that you're talking about also offer an API because the common conversation is decentralized or centralized, right? Versus OpenSea and LooksRare. And they still do have some of these, I'm going to put air quotes, like centralized mechanics around the data and the actual transactions. And that may not be that like level of information or may just might escape a lot of people that are commenting about this stuff online. But while they do have really interesting staking mechanisms and they have a token, some of the actual operations from a company perspective are still following a lot of the same practices that you're seeing centralized companies do because of the problems you bring up. On-chain data storage is expensive. And for LooksRare, who touts themselves as decentralized, right, still is following some of these off-chain practices. Yeah, I think you know it's almost a utilitarian approach. If you released a marketplace like LooksRare and you were charging people more money to list or to sort of interact with your platform, it'd be really hard as an upstart marketplace that has already huge challenges in terms of how do we get you know, first, a bunch of people to list, uh, and they've done a great job incentivizing that recently, and then also rewarding people to buy. And especially when, you know, as a consumer, you could go to OpenSea, uh, and then initially who had 95 or 96% of all transaction volume, starting a marketplace is very difficult. So while, yeah, you know, I think right now, in order to be a competitive marketplace, you do have to have these off-chain mechanics that save people money. They would probably argue that the other decentral sort of functions of their uh, their marketplace uh, with rewarding people with a token is, is for the greater good that they do have these things that make them a competitive marketplace and do drive consumers to their site. But yeah, and then hopefully I think a lot of the, you know, it's not really for the marketplace or you don't want to place blame on the marketplaces for having these mechanics, even though it's probably not the most like ideal decentral way of doing business because a lot of the limitations are on sort of the blockchain infrastructure side, not so much the how the marketplace is built. I think it's something that Nas you know, not everybody has insight to that does make it harder to build in 
in Web3 in general. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to ask you a question about like any data practices that you're doing. When you analyze blockchain data, is it always kind of calls to the, and I'm just imagining this as like, I, I come from a little bit of a data science background myself too. So, but tell me if I'm thinking about any of this wrong. Are you making like a call to the blockchain to get information back? Or do you, or do you basically write a script that downloads data from the blockchain, like the most recent ledger of transactions, and then store them in your own like off-chain database, and then run all your analysis and queries uh, there? I'm the least technical of our three co-founders. Uh, Cody is actually the one who manages our backend system. The basic explanation is we use Alchemy, who's a super node provider that basically allows you to, to have access to those events as a service versus standing up your own node. Uh, we listen for all of the events for all the contract addresses we support and record sales, listings, transfers, and then are able to store that internally so that we can index them and, and serve up that data uh, super fast on the site. That's probably the, the best explanation I could give you. It's probably more nuanced than that. But there are a lot of resources if you're looking to build, uh, particularly on the data side um, in Web3 in terms of accessing that data. And, and the prices are pretty fair in terms of like as a, an individual sort of passion project, uh, you could probably afford to use Alchemy's free service and, and perform meaningful analysis and have access to meaningful data uh, at a very accessible price. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, uh, I did a... A personal project back back in the Top Shot days when I was active there, and I tried. There was some data source on Kaggle that I downloaded that had all the transactions from like I don't know th the last three months, and I was trying to create a machine learning model that looked at predicting moment price, but it basically didn't work. And I'd say most most responsibility falls on my lack of expertise in data science skills, but. The second half is it was crazy because the same LeBron James moment that had sold, you know, just a month prior for five dollars was selling for like five thousand dollars, you know, 30 days later. And I just don't think the model was able to learn. It was like, I don't know what's going on because there's ex the extreme volatility basically made my model not be able to predict anything. So that was my only experience with some data. But I just simply downloaded a data set. You know, I wasn't making any calls. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think we've had similar challenges in terms of we wanted to do smarter pricing around, particularly NBA Top Shot. But when you have markets that are extremely volatile, you don't want to be in a position where you're giving a an estimate that's extremely high or oftentimes like you could, when markets are sort of exploding like that, you could tell someone that an asset's worth you know four or five times what they'll ever be able to sell it for. So yeah, there, there's definitely challenges there. And then on the other side with the smaller collections, it's difficult because there's, you know, maybe 10,000 assets and 4,000 or 5,000 owners. It's difficult until you have hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions to really estimate price correctly. Not that it can't be done. There's, uh, you know, we've definitely done a ton of research there. There's there's other uh, companies that are, that are working on it, but it takes time. And a lot of, a lot of NFT price swings are very... I don't want to say subjective. There's there's a better word for it, but it's you know one tweet from a founder can completely explode or, or collapse an NFT's floor price, and it's not something that any model is going to be able to predict in terms of like that social aspect of it, or sort of that attention economy side of it. So um, you, we want to do our best for people to come to our site and see at least looking backwards how is how is this NFT sold? How are the different traits selling? what levels of volume are you seeing for these particular assets? Uh, but it is difficult in terms of like looking forward to predict prices 
uh, in extremely volatile markets that are sometimes based off of either, you know, like social aspects or just uh, top collector behavior, right? Like if somebody's going to dump 500 ETH into a project, it's hard to predict that. Um, but yeah, similar challenges, even, even at the like organizational level. Yeah. So would you say that evaluates really focus on descriptive analytics versus prescriptive? Like it sounded like to me that the focus is the, the looking back, it's the describing the portfolio and the collections in the most detailed way. Right now, the focus is not to try to make predictions around future price action. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think in terms of looking forward or maybe non, you know, backward facing a data approach, we do want for people to be able to find and discover collections that they're interested in, that people they interact with are interested in that match their collecting behavior. But kind of like you mentioned earlier, the, the more we can kind of serve people beyond the financial metrics, the better I think we'll be for it. It's something that we take very seriously in terms of like when we're doing valuations that aren't concrete, you know, when you do a trade floor that's concrete, you can go and say, okay, across the marketplaces we support, this is the cheapest asset at that price. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get it immediately, right? There's, there's no, uh, you know, it's difficult to kind of predict that liquidation value if you had to sell an asset in a week, what would it go for? But we can at least point to real data. And it, it, while it's needed, it's very difficult right now to, to prescribe something with more advanced models. And when you do, they tend to be at a cheaper price, which is hard to, you know, there's a challenge in terms of being an app that's saying that your asset's worth less than what the cheapest item is. So um, it's something that, you know, we're looking at, but uh, and today as just being a, a company that's, you know, around a year old, we're being very careful in terms of when we come up with our own prices, especially when we're saying that it's worth more than maybe, you know, it's ever sold for, I guess. Makes sense. No, appreciate that explanation. And it's, it's just good to hear your perspective on how you're, how you're thinking about some of those product features. So now, before we get into our one, two, web three, another general question I had for you is what trends are you seeing grow in terms of adoption in 2022 and beyond? We've touched on, okay, we started NFTs with collectibles, then we went to PFPs, and then there's been a whole music, gaming, photography, uh, you know, jump. What, what are you seeing next in terms of maybe from your own, your own view, or maybe it's what you're seeing start getting more traction through, you know, evaluating what people are collecting? I would say, especially now that we've had, you know, there's there's been a different market, right? I don't want to say that we're going to, it's hard to predict what things will look like in a week. My hope is that there'll be a less uh, sort of meme stock behavior, right? Where you're picking the collections that you want to get involved with based off of the ones you think that have that social momentum that are going to increase in value. And more so maybe having an environment that looks like music, right? Like it's not like people go and say, what's the the music season or genre that we're going to be listening to for the next four months, right? People just tend to have their interest and get involved with that. So it's hard. It's like, I think it's, it's a question I always get, like, is it going to be, you know, generative art? Is it going to be ticketing? Is it going to be music? It, it, it's really hard to say, but I think my hope is that uh, as NFTs become more ubiquitous, that it's really just that you see them as digital assets and that you buy and sort of collect the ones that you're interested in. And that there isn't this heavy expectation of like, okay, if this asset that I buy isn't 4X in, in building a metaverse game and throwing a you know massive uh, you know world type event, uh, then this is a failure, right? I think having a, an NFT that, you know, we'd love to see more NFTs that you could buy for $10 uh, and connect with people you like and enjoy it versus the expectation being I'm going to pay a thousand and then hopefully sell this in, in a week for 3000 or, or more. Really like that comment. And it was something I was thinking about even before this conversation was like, should all NFTs have 
monetary value versus and be financialized or should they just be something we collect and own and I, I think there's space for both but so much of the focus right now is on the the financial side of things and you know it's tough to sell an nft for ten dollars on ethereum when you're going to pay ten dollars in gas at the same time so maybe that has something to do with the psychology behind it it's like if we're spending so much on the fees will it better be worth it but yeah well hopefully we'll we'll start seeing more open edition kind of mints, larger communities at a lower price point, things that you can just collect for the sake of collecting. And then also into more of the use cases, ticketing, et cetera, just make NFTs more actual utilities versus, I don't know, commodities or something like that. Sure. And I'm, I'm definitely not anti-financialization. I think it's an awesome attribute of NFTs in terms of like you can get involved with your interest and collect things. And then if your interests change, you can sort of bring that value uh, into your next interest. And But at the same time, like I literally resonate with what you're saying in terms of there's a heavy focus on on the financialization of it. You know, I think during the Top Shot day, I think a lot of people were like uh, saying like, oh, like sites like Evaluate caused this because now everyone just sees them as stocks. And uh, that's not our goal, right? It's not to say that these are just uh, these sort of vehicles to make money. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with in terms of like being able to get involved with your interest to buy these digital assets and then accrue value over time because you're super passionate about it and you're doing a ton of research and you're making good decisions. And I think that's that's where we want to be. We want to help people when they're sort of getting involved in these different interests and these different NFTs to understand the value, to understand how they've sold in the past uh, versus just sort of making everything a, a stock ticker, which I guess we, we do on our homepage. Yeah. No. Yeah. Love that. Well, sweet. Christian, been good conversation so far. Let me ask you a couple questions that I ask every guest. And the first one is, uh, can you share an influential creator, maybe a entrepreneur collector that's inspired or educated you in, in the past year in the NFT space? Yeah. Uh, Nikhil from Alchemy, I think is super inspirational. I think I have like I kind of resonate with him where he built like a lot of trivial apps and had like 30 files. I did kind of something similar. I had like a, a Twitch app uh, that helped people find themselves on Twitch streams for Halo players, uh, a Peloton analysis app. So uh, I kind of resonate with that a little bit. And then also his experience with uh, Down to Lunch where you just had this huge boom in popularity and then had to kind of go back and, and build after uh, build after that. So uh, yeah, he's definitely uh, of the entrepreneurs in, in sort of our space, the one I look up to the most. And watching him speak at Boston Blockchain Week, where he went over, I think, like two hours or something like that, and nobody wanted to leave, you know, just a ton of charisma and, and someone I, I kind of look up to in the Web3 space. Yeah, you know, I got to be honest, I'm actually not familiar with him. So I'm definitely going to be doing a look up afterwards and maybe see if I can find that talk. So that was a, that's a great answer because it was someone that I'm not familiar with. So I'm looking forward to following them along. And you also just mentioned there, and I, I'm deviating from our one, two, three, but you you mentioned resonating with him around when you launched and then all of a sudden you got this massive boom and you had to go back. I just, quick an- antidote story, like, was it crazy when Evaluate was just gaining users every single day? Like, were you, was it straight up one of those moments where you're up every night fixing the site, getting more server capacity, stuff like that? Yeah, it was, it was it, you know, it was just uh, me, Cody and Alex then working full-time jobs from home and also having 30,000 people, uh, you know, in a 30 minute period hitting your site all the time. Um, I have no idea how entrepreneurs like in the eighties or nineties, or I guess even more so like in the early two thousands or early internet did things because scaling to that is, is almost impossible. If we had to like set up our own servers, uh, even just the the business administration side, like if I didn't have DocuSign and notarize.com and things like that would be impossible. Uh, but yeah, no, extremely challenging in terms of like uh, having the focus to kind of 
you know, going to work full time and then coming home and being like, oh, this is on fire. Oh, you know, you have people in discord, like, you know, spamming inappropriate things. It was, it was a lot to manage. Um, but luckily we were able to raise money quickly and and focus full time. Uh, but a wild experience. Yeah. I, you, now that you've left the old job, I think you can say there's no shot you were focused at work while this was going on, right? Like it was, the laptop was open, the mouse was jiggling, but you were doing evaluate stuff. I got to imagine. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that because I, I'll say this, you know, if we were, we weren't in like a work from home period, if we were going to work and commuting and, and being gone eight hours a day, it would have been very hard to set up a business. hundred percent. Okay. So my second question in the web one, two, three is what is your favorite NFT? That you own? Yeah, I really like my crypto. I think it's 3880. I say that, but it's listed for 10 ETH. So if you, you want to snatch it off for me, uh, you can. I don't think that's a fair price. Yeah, that, that's my favorite one. Aesthetically, it's just super nice. It's very simple. It doesn't, even though I like the way the other toads look, where they've got like chocolate hanging out of their mouth and a cigarette or like a beret, it's a very clean one. And um, one I just had, a, I've had a ton of experience, uh, or not experience, but I've had a ton of fun collecting. And I, I try to use that as my PFP outside of Twitter. Yeah. Cool. I did look at your OpenSea profile beforehand and uh, I like that toad. It's pretty chill. And that's sweet that you minted it too, right? Or was it not mint? It wasn't. I think I bought it a little bit after mint. Sweet. Cool. And then my last question for you, in five years, what's the craziest thing you think we'll be doing in the metaverse that we're just not thinking or talking about yet? Yeah, it's a great question. I think five years is a little bit optimistic. Uh, But one thing I thought would be super interesting is if the idea is that we have these digital avatars that we control, I would love to see a situation where they're somewhat autonomous when you're not spending time in the metaverse. Uh, there's a lot of like algorithms and, and software that are like mimicking people's voices uh, that are creating art or code based off of text or chat history. It'd be really interesting if you had like a digital avatar that was autonomous that earned you, you know, tokens or financial rewards based off of your creativity or, uh, you know, maybe talented speaker or whatever your talents and passions are. So that's my crazy prediction is that we will have avatars that are autonomous. When we're not logged in, that'll make us money. I think that would be super cool. Mm, I'm imagining a world of Sims characters walking around and going crazy when you're not at your computer. So I like that. And you're right. It's, it is crazy how much better the voice technology is today. I mean, there's so many different apps out there that do a great job where you can basically record. I think I've even seen stuff down to like an hour of audio recordings from yourself and you can get a super lifelike model that generates audio from your voice that you can then plug into an app and it could read text in your voice sounding like you. So I don't know, maybe these podcasts, I won't even be live anymore. It's just going to be an AI version of me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge challenge uh, just for society in general in terms of determining like what videos or social media comments or audio recordings are real versus generated as that sort of area becomes more advanced. Well, good news is Unstoppable is working on digital reputation and identity. So hopefully we play a part in that. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for joining this pod. I think this conversation is great. And I just really loved the the data talk we were able to have and, and your perspective on that and hearing your story as a builder. So I'm going to be following Evaluate and uh, excited for the updates and the feature improvements in, in the months to come. But can you please let everyone know, how can they connect with you? How can they follow the business and maybe even use it if they're not a user right now? Sure. Yeah. So go to evaluate.market, connect your wallet. You'll be able to see your portfolio. Uh, And like I said, you can connect multiple. So if you collect Flow NFTs and Ethereum NFTs, you can uh, connect all of your wallets across those uh, ecosystems. Uh, In terms of following me, my uh, Twitter is at Christian underscore DTMR. You can follow Evaluate Market at Evaluate Market. 
or search us on Google and you can see our job listings. We are hiring, uh, I think in the UI UX area, data science. So feel free to check that out. Uh, we're looking for people who are passionate about this space, even when you're not, you know, when the market's not as great to come in and get involved. But yeah, that's how you can connect with us. Beautiful. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the Unstoppable Podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, follow along on Apple or Spotify, leave a review if you enjoyed the episode and found it insightful. Really helps me reach more Web3 curious and native folks. And with that, we'll see you next week with another episode and catch you in the metaverse. Peace out. Thank you, Josh. See you, Christian. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share this with your friends. And remember, this conversation doesn't have to end here. Tweet us your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you so much for listening.